message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruin. First John, we're starting the last chapter of First John. We are broken. Amen. We feel that way. And it's, it's a good thing, I think, even this morning that our kids, our, uh, our older elementary school kids are here. Because, you know, John writes in this letter over and over to those he calls little children, doesn't he? And um, I think today's message, at least in my heart and mind, I hope, I hope the kids who are here, I hope my boys, I hope they hear Hope they hear John's words today in a in a way that uh, that impacts them for life. But frankly, we grown ups, we're the little children John's talking to, isn't he? And we grown up kids need to hear what John has to say today. Today is frankly not a complicated message. It's not going to be one of my longer messages. It's not going to be one of my deeper messages, because I think there's just a phrase that that we could honestly just read and go home. 1 John chapter 5, we're going to look at the first five verses, but specifically just a phrase therein. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of God. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Let me remind you that Grandpa John, his heart is is big for you. The last remaining apostle, near the end of his life, his heart is big for you. His heart was big for the church that he was writing to in his day. He was the the beloved apostle and, and he saw you as his beloved. And this grandfatherly, elderly figure, in this letter more than any of his others, pours his heart out to the church that we would know the love of the Father that we would be secure in the love of the Father. Let me remind you, and if you want to go through, I'm going to take them in order. In his, in his own words, he tells us why he writes. And if you want to circle the verse, you can do that. If you want to put maybe a P for John's purpose next to these verses, that might be helpful so you can go back through and you can see these. I've given you, I think, four or five of them before this. Let me give you even a couple more today. Chapter 1, verse 3. These won't be on the screen, so you'll have to flip. You'll have to go old school. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says that we might have fellowship. What we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And and what is the fellowship he intends for us all to join into? It's the fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. He writes that we would have a unity of fellowship. John says... I'm, I'm in communion with the Father and with the Son, and I'm, I'm writing, and I'm telling you what we've seen, I'm telling you what we've heard, so that you can be 
be in on that fellowship. In the very next verse, he tells us another reason why he's writing. These things I write, we write, so that our collectively joy may be made complete. John finds great joy in the satisfaction, in the unity, in the fellowship of all the believers. John's heart for you and for those he was writing to is that you wouldn't be tossed to and fro by the, by the difficulties of this world, by those who might come in and, and try and point your life in another direction, and try and confuse Christianity in your own heart and mind. John's heart was that you would be settled, that you would be in, in close fellowship with the entire body, but namely with the Father and with the Son via the Holy Spirit, and that that might produce joy. And that I think John knows that if you're getting it, if you're, if you're experiencing it, then he, he selfishly but righteously is going to even be more full of joy. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, he says this, that his purpose for writing is that we do not sin. That we do not sin. And one of the things I've been saying to you is that, that this letter is more a letter of comfort than it is a letter of correction. Right? The way I've said that, many weeks up to now, is that John is going to state the facts of what it means to be a Christian. Don't take the facts as if they are commands. As if John writes this letter to you saying, do this, 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 and this, and you'll be a Christian for sure. Kids, as you grow up in the church and as you start to understand the gospel more and more, there will be this point of confusion where you're going to think that Jesus wants you to keep a list of do this, 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 and this, and then I'll love you, and then you'll be approved, and then you'll get a ticket to heaven. That's not his plan, and it's not what God wants John to say. It's not what John preaches through this first letter at all. John's stating the facts. He, he brings a word of comfort here, a word of confirmation, not a word of correction. John's intent here is not to look into the church and say, hey, you've got to get this right, this right, this right, and this right. And then you know, you're, then you know you're, you're really a Christian. That's not the heart of the apostle. That's not the heart of the Father. This is not a checklist faith. Instead, what John has been trying to do here, and I think it's what he starts to spell out in his own words, communicating his own purpose for writing, is that, we who are the beloved, you little children, understand that, that these are the things that are present in the new birth. When you're born again, these are the facts of the matter. It's very easy, though, for us to read even, even John's words and feel like we're, we're falling short or feel like we don't measure up. Chapter 2, verse 1. Is a, is a good example of that. John says in chapter 2, verse 1, that he is writing, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But notice how he finishes that thought. Notice, notice what he adds to that thought. Because if you leave it out, I think you miss the heart of the Apostle. Christians, we ought not to be involved in sin. Little children, I think John makes that just an, an assumed statement. 
But he follows it very closely with these words. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, namely Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He's the satisfaction for our sins, not only for ours, but also for all those of the whole world if they would only accept by faith through his grace. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. It's another reason he writes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. There's really three purposes here in this one, but you can take them collectively. Little children, I'm writing because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. To three different parts of the church, John brings words of comfort. I'm writing because you you do know this. I'm writing because you are doing this. I'm writing because you do understand these things. These aren't words of correction, it doesn't seem. These are words of comfort, words of confirmation to their faith. When the doubts are coming, am I really who I think I am? 1 John is the place to go, church. 1 John is the place to go. 1 John chapter 2, verse 21. I write to you, why? Not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Same thing. My letter is not to get you started in the Christian life, but to confirm you in it. Two more. Chapter 2, verse 26. The purpose for writing is that we might be victorious over deceivers. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Meaning that you're, you're on track, but there are those who are trying to knock you off track. You're on the right path, but there are those who are fishing with error to try and gain your attention and, and catch you away into some error. But what is the, what is the inference? The inference is you are what you think you are. You're confirmed. Chapter 5, verse 13, probably the most clear and I think really the summary of his, of his purpose for writing. He says that his purpose is that we might know that we have eternal life, that we might know that we're saved, that we're born again, that we might know that we are in the faith. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. These are words of confirmation not words of correction. If you're the child of God, if you're the beloved, whether now or in a future season of your life, and you're wondering if you, if you really are who you think you are, if, if the adversary starts to sneak in and say, do you really think God loves you? Do you really think you're, you're really a Christian? 1 John is the letter that gives you the reasons that you can hold fast to your faith. It's not a checklist of to-dos, of external things to do that make you a Christian. It's a letter for Christians to rest assured, confident in their faith. There's a difference. There's a difference. There's a whole segment of Christianity that goes about Christianity from the external point of view. This is a problem, especially in the southeast. 
This is a problem, especially in what we call the Bible Belt. It's less of a problem when you get out of the southeast, frankly. You go to the northeast, it's a little bit different of a flavor. When you head west, it's, it's amazing how, how the challenges to the faith of Christianity and this whole works, grace, struggle change. I remember when um, the Kemp's moved to Oregon from here. Um, Jack, who was an elder here at the church, we were talking about some of the churches they were visiting there. And he, he was telling me about one of the churches that they were visiting. And he said, he said, Darrell, it's an amazing thing, the difference between the churches we were accustomed to, especially in the southeast. And he's originally from the northeast, so he would include that to some degree. He says, but, but here, it's a whole other world. And I said, explain that to me. What do you mean? He said, nobody here has assumed they're Christian. Christianity is a foreign thing here on the West Coast. When someone gets saved, it's a complete transformation. It's going from darkness into light. He said, he said back there, it's almost like everybody assumes they're in the light. And maybe we try a little harder to walk in the light than we do in the darkness. And those are the people we, we, we call Christians. And everybody is kind of a part of the church in the, in the Bible Belt. And it's hard really to tell the difference. To which I said, Amen. I was talking to uh, Craig Haney, who uh, just came back from a couple weeks in South Africa. He went with a group called LifeWork Leadership. It's a group that, uh, that seeks to challenge businessmen in the community. He's a part of that ministry here in Atlanta. And uh, it's, a, it's a group that just calls businessmen, leaders in, in the secular business world together, and it challenges them to live out their faith in the workplace. That's essentially what they do. And uh, he and a couple of the leaders for LifeWork Leadership went to South Africa because there's a church in South Africa that said, we want to impact as a church the local community of business leaders. We, we think that's part of what God has challenged us to do, to which Craig said amen and the other leaders said amen. And so they went to help them try and establish LifeWork Leadership there in South Africa. And Craig was telling me about his trip and, and he was telling me about the difference of life work leadership growing up there than what he has experienced in life work leadership here. And he was telling me about the difference between the church that he was attending there and the church as he's experienced it, not just here at Cornerstone, but here in America. And the main difference that he started to key on was is that we, we talk about transformation in Christianity as this process, and it is. We talk about it as this journey, and it is. And we in LifeWork Leadership, we seek to transform business leaders so that they can transform their world, their environments. And that's true. He said, but one of the things I noticed there with their businessmen that came to these meetings, and one of the things I noticed just as a whole in the church there was that they were already transformed. And certainly there is this work of transformation that needs to take place, this growth that needs to take place. He said, maybe it's a subtle difference, but I, I noticed something different. 
that it's hard to see here, especially in America, but especially in the southeast. The difference between people who are trying to transform their life, change their life, and people who have been changed, people who have been transformed by the gospel, by the work of the Holy Spirit, by what I would call being born again. I think I've told you this before that uh, I've, I've learned over the years as I share my faith. Maybe you've experienced this when you attempt to share your faith, that Words and phrases matter. Here's what I mean. Um, in the last 10, 20 years or so in the church, we, we have, we've started to try, and this isn't a bad thing necessarily, we've tried to start using lingo, phrases, verbiage that the world, that world that's outside of Christianity, they have a different worldview than us, and so they don't, they don't speak Bible, Right? We've tried to start using language that they can identify with, that resonates with them, that's not, just, that's not just so ingrained in our tradition that only those who speak Bible understand it. So that we've, we've made an attempt in the last 10 or 20 years to use language that they can, they can grab hold of. And that's a good thing. But part of what's happened is in, in that process, I think, is that whether intentional or not, we've lost some of the bite that comes with some of our biblical language. Maybe one of the most important places that we've lost that is when it comes to terms of salvation. When we talk to someone about the gospel now, we talk to them about following Christ, being Christ followers. We talk to them about um, being uh, on a journey with Jesus. We talk to them about living out their life with Christ. One of the things, one of the phrases that we've kind of decided is not really a, an understandable term, that it's maybe too Bible, maybe it's too New Testament than, than this century, maybe it's, it's too weird, honestly, than what this world might understand is the phrase to be born again. And it is a weird phrase. It is an odd phrase. But the truth is, when we pull out that phrase, that I think Scripture very intentionally means to be a confronting phrase, a clarifying phrase, we inadvertently maybe do some damage to what Christianity really is. Christianity, church, is being born again, being born anew. It is the old life passing away, and there is a new life. Christianity isn't, to put it another way, Christianity is not giving Jesus a try. Christianity is not trying on Jesus to see if he fits maybe. To see if maybe he makes your life a little bit better. To see how comfortable he might be. To see how he'll work in addition to your life. Maybe, maybe church is the answer. Maybe if I add some sort of religious thing to my life, then things will improve. Unfortunately, Jesus doesn't work that way. There are many religions, there are many faiths out there that are designed to, to be additions to your life in just that way. Christianity is the only one that does not work that way. 
Jesus said, you must be born again. To which we should, like those who he said it to, said, well, what does that mean? How does that happen? I say all that to say that, that John, especially in 1 John, is so very clear on that truth. It's a foundational truth to John. To be a Christian means that you are new. You're born anew. You are born again. And that's different than just giving Jesus a try. It's different than just coming to church and trying to do the external things that make you look like a Christian. And over and over in this letter, he's been trying to tell us, here's what a Christian really looks like. And it's not optional. Love has to be a part of who you are if you're a Christian because love is from God and God is love. And God abides in the Christian and the Christian abides in God. And so it's necessary. It's essential. It cannot be divorced one from another. It's not an add-on that you can put on one day and take off another. It's not optional like that. Over and over, he states the facts of the matter. These aren't, these aren't options. They're not additions. They're not, they're not accessories that you can add like you do when you buy a car. They're not, they're not upgrades that you can add like you do when you build a home. John says, these are the things that come with your Christianity. But it's very easy to read his letter and think, all right, I've got to do that. I've got to do that. I've got to do that. To which I think John would say, no, 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 stop. That's, that's not how this works. Now, I think we've been trying to say that. Maybe, maybe clearer than ever before, he says it in verse 3 of our passage today. So with all that as, as background, as foundation, look at what he says here, because this is a prime example of where we can go wrong or where we can hear the heart of the apostle. Chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Stop right there. Sounds a lot like what Jesus had to say, doesn't it? John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. They're not the same thing. They're different things, and one is birthed out of another. Those who love me will keep my commandments. Now, it would be very easy... And I think John understands this for us to read that and stop right there and keep going on and make that another check that we have to make sure we're, we're hitting. And if you leave here today and you, and you go out saying uh, in your own heart that that has to be one of the boxes you check this week, then I think they think you, you miss the intent of the apostle. And because he knows that, because I think he knows that great danger, he adds a phrase here, that if you miss, I think you miss, I think you miss the entire intent of the letter. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Almost in parentheses, and His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. If they're not burdensome, 
then what are they? Think about it. It would be the opposite of something being a burden. Something that is a burden is something that's heavy, something that weighs you down. Something that's not a burden is something that is light. If you have a bulletin, there's a verse that I put in your scriptures. The words of Jesus himself. And he says that his yoke is what? Easy. He says that the the burden that he brings is what? Light. As if to say there there is no burden at all. This is the love of God. Keep His commandments. But do not miss, church. Kids, do not miss this. His commandments are not burdensome. What does that mean? And this is the entirety of my sermon. What does that mean? I think it means what the psalmist says over and over. Let me give you just a few. These won't be on the screen. Psalm 40, the psalmist says this in verse 8. I delight to do the will of my God. Your law is within my heart. Notice that the law is no longer for the Christian an external thing. The Bible says that the law of God for the Christian is now written where? In their heart. Christianity is essentially an internal thing. So it's not a list of external ideas that you check off and you are trying to do so that you become and you look more like a Christian. No. The psalmist says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Conversely, because your law is in my heart, I delight to do your will. Why does he keep the commandments? Because the law is not burdensome to him. It's something that is within him. Psalm 119, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Later in Psalm 119, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in them. They're not burdensome. And even later in Psalm 119, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished. I would have perished in my affliction. It's interesting. I go back to one of the purposes John gave us. Probably one of the, one of the ones that might make us feel more guilty than the others. John says, I write that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Some would say that John messed up right there. That if you don't want the church to sin, if you don't want the little children, if you don't want the beloved to sin, then you don't give them the latter half of that verse. You don't tell them that if you do sin, you have an advocate. You just say, don't sin. And you, and you leave that heavy, burdensome weight on their shoulders. And to tell them that they have an advocate, and that if they do sin, if they do fall short, that they, they have, namely, Jesus Christ on their side pleading their case, that if you tell them that, then they'll be all the more apt to sin. But the truth is, the reality of how the real gospel works is that for those who know that Jesus Christ is their advocate at heaven, after being crucified, buried, and resurrected, and now ascended to the right hand of the Father, for those who understand, the reality of Christianity is is that we have an advocate, we are all the more, we are all the more, set against our own sins. That's how Christianity works. The laws, the commandments of God, they become not burdensome, they become the delight of our heart as they were for the psalmist. 
I think they, I think they become what, what uh, Paul would say in Romans. Those things that I, that I, that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. But those things that I want to do, uh, those are the things I, I'm not doing. His heart was to do those things. The inner man was changed. Why? Because Paul had been born again. Let me say it one more way and then I'll wrap it up. Christianity is a transformation. It's not just a process of transformation. When you become born again, you are a new creation. And so you can understand your Christianity this way. Christianity is not... It it, it doesn't happen when you decide to do a bunch of Christian stuff. You don't try to do Christianity and hopefully one day look more Christian and become more Christian. Birth determines your identity, not your performance. If you want to write something down today, that may be it. Birth determines your identity, not your performance. So the question is, have you been born again? It's not, do you look like a Christian by your activity? The question is, have you been born again? Now, will activity follow the new birth? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it in terms of, you know, if if you walk like a duck, talk like a duck, quack like a duck, all, all that stuff, right, kids? Then you're probably a duck, right? It doesn't quite work that way with Christianity. You can come to church, you can read your Bible, you can say the prayers, you can do the deal, you can sing the songs. It doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. Now, is that a helpful thing for us? Yes, it's helpful. I mean, you can't say you're a Christian if those sort of things aren't happening in your life. But what determines what you are, what determines whether or not you're a duck, is whether you were born a duck or not. You can act like a duck all you want, but you'll never become a duck if you weren't born a duck. You can act like a Christian all you want, but you'll never become a Christian if you're not born again a Christian. Have you been born again? It's a strange thing to ask. But what John knows, what Paul knew, what Jesus knew, is that birth determines your identity. And so there were a bunch of people in that church who were trying to walk like, talk like, look like Christians. The problem was they weren't Christians. And so every now and then they would walk and talk not like a Christian because the truth was they weren't a Christian. But those who were Christians were starting to wonder. Well, they say they're Christians, but sometimes they don't walk or talk or look like Christians. And John comes along and he says, listen, This is the love of God. We keep His commandments. But you know what's more than that? You know what's more than that? Is that for the true Christian, it's not just the guy who keeps commandments like they're boxes to be checked. But if you look at their very heart, the commands of God are not burdensome at all. So, big kids, to the big beloved, I ask this. Are the commandments of God, 
of those things that we know we should look like, of the things that we know are the external things that should follow with being born again, are they, are they strange to your life? Are they an odd thing for your life? Or do you find that your heart is necessarily drawn to the commands of God? I, I didn't say, do you always keep the commands of God? I didn't say, are you perfect in those things? And neither does John. But is your heart drawn to them? Are, are, the, are the things of God, is the will of God a burden to you? Is it a struggle? Is it something, is it something you, you naturally strive against? Or is it something you naturally are drawn towards like the Apostle Paul in Romans? That's what I want to do. Sometimes I don't do it, but I want to. Sometimes I find myself doing the things I don't even want to do, but I, I hate that part of me. Are the commands of God and the things that He says are evidences, are those the things your heart is drawn to, grown-up kids? If not, then tonight you need to lay awake, begging the grace of God to give you the faith that is required. Read the next couple verses, grown-up kids, as you lay awake tonight. To our younger kids. Kids, um, listen, my kids, even Corbin, Grady, um, if you didn't hear another thing I said, I want you to hear this. And you may not understand it now. One day, I hope, I hope by God, uh, by His Holy Spirit, by grace, He helps you to understand it. The commandments of God are not burdensome. Now, I'm not telling you that. The Bible tells you that. The Bible tells you that the instructions of God, the will of God for your life, is not a heavy thing that will weigh you down and pin your life down, that you have to drudgingly carry through life. That's not the heart of the Father in heaven for you. If whatever Christian turns out to be in your life, wherever, wherever God takes you in your Christianity, if there's ever a question for you, whether it's in middle school or maybe it's in high school or maybe like it was for me, it comes not until college and you start to feel like God in all of His stuff that He calls Christianity and all that stuff about church that I grew, up, I grew up hearing and going to, it just feels like this heavy weight. Remember that the Bible says that God's commands are not burdensome. So if it feels burdensome, cast it off because that is not Christianity. And go back to the Bible. Go back and ask the Holy Spirit. Beg God to show you true Christianity. Maybe the answer is this, kids. That if it feels like a burden, it's because you've been, you've been trying to just add God to your life. When the Bible says God wants to become your life. And the Holy Spirit wants to whisper to your heart the darkness of your heart and, and spark a flame in your heart so that you are born again. Kids, there has to be a time in your life where God decides to bring new life into your heart. When He does that, trust me, when He does that, the commands of God, the will of God will more naturally become 
what you are drawn to, you'll love them. If that's not you now, listen to the Holy Spirit. When you go home tonight, kids, before you go to sleep, say, God, I'm listening. I'm listening for when you want to whisper to my heart. Whenever you want me to be born again, I'm ready. Let's pray. Young and old, Lord, we're, we are the little children gathered around your word. We thank you that you've gone before us. You've gone before us to the cross to pay for our debt of sin. And you stand behind us as our strength and hope. And you stand beside us as our friend and as a great warrior in this faith. We're not alone. Christianity isn't something we're trying to do alone. Jesus, thank you for, for living in us. Thank you that Christianity is, is me as a whole new person, born as a whole new creature, as a whole new creation. Lord, for those of us who have been born again, Lord, give us great rest and peace, confidence that you are you are the warrior who has gone before us. You've accomplished all the work. And we are becoming what we already are. We're embracing what you've already done. We're aligning our lives to match the truth of who you say we are. For those who have not been yet born again in this room, young and old, Lord, uh, remove our hearts and minds from, from this mentality that, that Lord, is just uh, a cancer, especially in America and especially in the southeast, this place that we call the Bible Belt. Remove this cancerous idea that, that we can try Christianity, that we can join Christianity. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. By grace, birth faith in the hearts of the lost. Birth faith in the hearts of my children. Birth faith in the hearts of these children who have yet to understand that there is a, there is a new life waiting for them. By the foolishness of even our preaching, Lord, would you use your word to transform. We pray in Jesus' name, who is our cornerstone, the one who has gone before us. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.